Pancakeisto and I was explaining this. You can this. get a pancake. For the, the biscuit sandwich, they gave you a pancake. <laughs> and it's like, that's a lot of carbs. And they're, they're big-ass pancakes. And so Jordan was like, who the hell is running this place? Is it like some guy that's got some run-on pancakes? <laughs> hey! Hey! Who has a run-on pancake? <laughs> <laughs> we got all these pancakes over here. What am I? What am I? What am I? <laughs> gotta get that guy a pancake. <laughs> You got the mystic sandwich, sir. Give, give, hey, give him a pancake. Oh, God. So that's, that's, uh, that's what it is. It's, uh, it's, it's just pancakes galore. Good evening, everyone. We are live. I'm going to say that. I haven't, I haven't been able to say we are live in so long. Last Tuesday, I was this close to recording a live Red Zone. And Toussaint talked me out of a live Red Zone. So we pre-recorded Red Zone. been pre-recording, pre-recording. We pre-recorded so many shows. We sometimes three shows in a day plus some people were doing guest appearances on other shows so it does feel good to finally be back live Tucson how do you feel I'm feeling all right I'm feeling uh pretty (laughs) three-dimensional feeling feeling like I have a face um I I I want to say this before before uh we get into the show uh, for the Red Zone, we are going to start doing the Red Zone live. Uh, as of my co-host, Mac, we're having issues with scheduling. He is working out his schedule, so we're going to do the Red Zone live. And what the Red Zone live means is phone calls live. Wow. I was feeling festive in my cold-ass house. We're getting, we're, we're getting pelted a little bit with this uh, storm that's hitting California. So I wanted to feel festive. Do you remember this shirt, Tucson? I do remember that shirt. The times. What I thought you were going to talk about is what is probably on everyone's mind right now. What happened to your facial hair? <laughs> How are we in handlebar mustache mode? How did that happen? I was going more cop 
mustache. I wanted to get Danny Glover Lethal Weapon One. Is what I was going for. But uh, uh-huh. according to you, I look like a coked out porn star in uh, 1976. I mean, we've landed on Larry Blackman. Is where we keep <laughs> ending up. Cameo. How do we keep ending up here? I wish I could show you my pants, and then it would be. Yeah, I know, right? Larry Blackness. Look, we're, we're too much goofy. I, I think we're both just happy to be back live. Greetings, I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to our bi-monthly stream with our good friends at Left Reckoning, Matt and Leck and David Griscom. Sadly, David Griscom will not be joining us as he has fallen ill. I don't have anything else for ill people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we should probably find something better that doesn't sound like, ah, oh, fuck you, you're sick, because we, of course, don't feel that way. <laughs> but that's all I got right now. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit like, subscribe, and don't forget to ring that notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live. Also, if you're watching on the Left Reckoning channel, give TIR a like and a sub. If you're watching on TIR, give Left Reckoning a like and a sub. That simple passive gesture goes a long way in the support of independent left media. Also, after the show, if you're a patron here on TIR, we are going to take your calls to hear what you have to say about the topics discussed on today's show. Uh, For those of you that are subscribers and patrons, thank you for your continued support. That is the fuel in the engine of the TIR machine. If you'd like to wear your support, then let the people know with TIR merch. And you know what time that is What's super producer in Tucson. Use it. Oh, yay! New York pitch merch, merch pitch, hey. pitch march. Gotta love it. All right, so hey, we have uh, got t-shirts. Somebody wants to grill you, give them something to look at. But this is this is revolution merch. We got hoodies, pullovers, snapbacks, Pascal Searsucker Marxist suits coming soon. <laughs> hey, hey, we got hoodies over here. Oh, 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 here we go. Oh, walking here. Oh, walking over here. Hey, watch out. You get a pancake. You get a pancake. You get a pancake. You Don't get let a anybody pancake. step on your Tim's. There you go. Dude, I like that. Pascal. Pascal's Mark uh (laughs) Pascal's Mau Mau Captain Crunch hats also coming soon. (laughs) Does it have a Haitian flag on it to make it legit? It needs one. Okay, look, all this out of the way. First, let me introduce the voice you hear in the background if you're watching the show is the headless, faceless voice of reason, M. Tucson. Hello. R.I.P. Thanks to Boo. Where them dollars at, indeed. Shout out to the Twitch chat. Let me bring in for the new year. I can't wait to say this for the new year. My homie, my dog, he is the man of the Mau Mau Hour. He is the Mert Talk to my rigs. He is the Pascal Robert. 
Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Happy 2023 to our viewers, to the chat, to the TIR crew. I hope we have a long, prosperous, well, not long, but prosperous new year. And wish everyone the best. And uh, we are ready to rock and roll. Speaking of rock and roll, he is the uh, soulful one in his show. I don't know, I just made that shit up. <laughs> but he's everyone's favorite North Dakotan. He is Matt Leck. That's true. I'm the number one North Dakotan. Uh, you might actually be up there. If there was a ranking of North Dakotans, I'm trying to think of who. Phil Jackson. I think you probably rank higher with the 45 to 30 year old crowd than Phil Jackson. Yeah, people, the kids don't respect Phil anymore. Um, and his big jeans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I should apologize. Uh, I don't know how to work the uh, cross stream, so we are exclusive to this is revolution this evening oh damn you get this really <laughs> that's 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 fair enough for that uh you were the tech guy you. man how is that possible i'm slipping uh that once you get a reputation like that you can just like coast on it not really, <laughs> really hollow out <laughs> you're trying to, get to, work, here. The, you're trying to <laughs> work the restream like an old person with a digital camera what, what's it? What's going on? Where's the Where's the flash? I mean, look, I refreshed it. That didn't work, so I don't know what to tell you. Can't <laughs> sacrifice a goat now. <laughs> I, t- I turned it off and on. What's wrong with this thing? <laughs> I think it's a login problem that I'm a little bit too lazy to fix. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you get a pancake. <laughs> <laughs> Oh shit! I can't wait to take you and Pascal out of this place because I think you guys don't understand how large the pancakes were. Mm. I gotta say, not a pancake guy, because like, <gasps> they they taste good. Like if you could just take one bite of a pancake, that's good. But they make you sick every time. Like no food what? has a bigger hit rate to like making you eat too much. <laughs> You're gonna be too bloated and feel like not doing anything afterwards. Oh, this place should be called the the bloat. They are the bloat goat. <laughs> Pascal, pancakes. What is your what is your pancake take? Love pancakes. Give you the itis right away. So you would be down with me taking to this wonderful breakfast spot here in Rosarito where they just throw a pancake in with everything. Total food coma like immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, beyond pancakes, let's talk about uh guns. First of all, Matt Leck doesn't want the Democrats to take your gun away. Matt, you wanted to discuss the Minnesota state legislature's technocratic gun reform law that puts the rights to own guns in the hands of law enforcement, even some family members. Uh, This law is in response to the largely in response to the tragedy uh, of the events at Uvalde from an article in in the CBS News last December. With a newfound trifecta in state government, Democrats see an opportunity next session to pass gun control measures that have stalled in recent years because of pushback from Republicans in the Senate. 
during an appearance on WCCO Sunday morning, soon after November's election last month, DFL House Speaker Melissa Hortman listed gun violence prevention among four issues that her caucus would pass quickly when the legislature convenes in January. In 2020, the chamber approved expanding criminal background checks for all gun purchases and transfers. It also passed legislation allowing extreme risk protection orders, so-called red flag laws that allow law enforcement, and in some cases a family member, to petition that a judge temporarily restricts someone's ability to have firearms if they are determined to be a risk to themselves or others. Unquote. Matt, are the Republicans correct in there? The Dems are trying to take your guns away rhetoric, or is this just more technocracy in the face of societal collapse? And if so, what does that mean? Yeah, so I, David and I have talked about this uh, for five years regularly, as regularly as a lot of these shootings happen. And it's a topic that I haven't um, reached any sort of enlightenment on personally as to the way forward. I'm not somebody who likes to say, like, actually, statistically, you're not likely to uh, get in uh, to a school shooting or be threatened by someone with a gun. There's too much gun violence in this country. Um, David and I had Paul Prescott, friend of this show, um, Mm -hmm. on Left Reckoning. And one thing that he learned running for office was people in the community had a problem with uh, guns. And specifically, like, I was one of the people that was sort of rolling my eyes at the ghost gun conversation. And to hear that actually people have those concerns, like... I, I don't want to like sort of dismiss all that. Um, that said, like I've always been f- more comfortable with guns than I think a lot of people I grew up around them. I've shot deer with guns. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that, so like I, and I, and I actually even buy certain arguments about, uh, not like we're going to overthrow the government. I think that is rightly mocked, but I think the idea of community self-defense isn't one i think that's valuable that said i think it you also have to admit on the other hand that that comes at a price of a certain number of people are going to accidentally misfire or not Mm -hmm. accidentally fire um and you're going to lose people so like again like i don't have any real prescriptions uh there and like my like what i always land on and i don't know that it's sufficient but like i feel like it's it's you have to um and i'm curious what you guys think because um Mm -hmm. I, like David and I have talked about this a lot, but I don't think I've heard you guys talk about this, but like expanding liability um, is a certain thing, but like a lot of these prescriptions and I, and generally I don't think people need AR type weapons. When I think of like community self-defense, like I think everyone should have, if they want like a state issued um, from game and fish departments, like rifles and stuff like that um, along with like, like, and, and it shouldn't be cops uh, doing this. So the problem I have with this new um, Minnesota law is this uh, Rob Doer, legislative watcher on uh, Minnesota legislative watcher on Twitter said new gun owners <clears throat> registration bill introduced in Minnesota makes law enforcement, the gatekeepers of the right to keep and bear arms, allowing them to deny the right to buy, receive own guns based on simple contacts with police, not conviction, not even criminal charges. And I want to share this piece of a journalism <clears throat> by um, Nate silver. If you could put that up, Jason, this is a, a graph that shows, Police locals, a percentage of officers who live in each of the cities with the 75% largest police forces by race in 2010. So this is old, but I think it's probably hasn't changed a whole lot for the better. Um, 
And you can see uh, they have the total white, non-Hispanic, and then other there. Laredo Tech's doing really well with most of its cops there. You have to scroll all the way down here, and you see Minneapolis basically at the bottom. of. And what that means is all these cops are living in the lily-white suburbs of Minneapolis mm -hmm. and patrolling communities that they're afraid of and having interactions with people that they can go take guns away from. And we all know <laughs> the problem with this. Like even like um, pod save liberals should know the problem with in doing gun control this way. And yet this is really all that we can come up with. And I think it's really discouraging. And I, I don't like the Republican answer to this, but I also think like this is a problem when the only way we can solve problems is having a cop point a gun at it. Mm. Pascal. So, Matt, so do you believe that the the use of force or violence from a weapon should not be the sole control of the state? Do you believe that private citizens should have a right to weaponize self-defense? Yeah, I mean, I think in a, lim in a limited sense, like theoretically, I do think that, yeah. I'm not saying I have a problem with that concept, but the thing is, though, what, be what, what happens is that I find that the attempt to actually legislate that or allow that to happen in American society because of the way in which we have these lobbyist groups like the NRA and mm -hmm. others infiltrate the congressional process, that instead of having American citizens have the capacity to own a shotgun or, say, just a handgun, you, you they take it to the nth degree and now we have people arguing for ak-47s ar-15s so on and so forth massive assault rifles etc etc so on and so forth so how do we find the balance between the right to bear arms to protect you know home and hearth yeah. and the political ramifications of having lobbyists that push that to the point where we have things like kids coming into school with ARs and just blowing away their fellow students. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's a dynamic that I've seen and that's, um, growing up, my dad is a game and fish, a hunter safety, um, teacher. So very familiar around guns, but it's a different kind of, uh, it's not the weekend warrior. I want an AR type of thing that can mow down like and make a tree a stump. It's like, you know, the, um, uh, I forget that painter, the uh, Norman Rockwell, Norman like, Rockwell, you know, with a double barreled over thing and the bird dog. Right. That's and that the shift was caused by the gun industry's need for profit and, you know, uh, new markets than these just hunter guys. And yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a good question. I mean, we have gone the nth degree and that is and, and I don't think there's any like cleavage there between like <clears throat> old style hunters and like this new weekend warrior thing that I've kind of wished would develop. I think everyone's pretty much that is pro gun is kind of on the same page on that stuff now. So, and I, I, I do want to say what Strom said, like the reactionary paramilitaries, I don't want to be too paranoid about that, but that also like we need guns to defend ourselves against reactionary paramilitaries, 1% or biker gangs and so on. Like that's also like a reason you'll need some sort of state uh, armed uh, uh, first response that, hopefully isn't in the form of a cop, uh, you know, ideally. Well, the thing is, though, I mean, I have comrades I know who consider themselves part of the revolutionary left who argue that we cannot depend on the political process to protect ourselves from yeah. the rise of the reactionary right. 
And part of the problem with the current configuration of the left that we have is that they're not martial enough. In other words, they're not interested in arming themselves enough to prepare for the task of, 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 of combating the right, who are profoundly armed. Many of them are profoundly armed. And I, I, I think about... I think about those arguments and one of the things that I generally believe is that the state will not respond to an arm left the same way it responds to an arm right. And I don't think the state has ever responded. I think about the Black Panthers. I think about other constellations of of left movements and where there was uh, uh, an incentive for people to arm themselves. I, I've always found that the state is willing to use whatever means possible to bring down the punitive hammer on the left when it talks about, you know, using weaponry to protect itself against the state or the reactionary right. And they're more willing to do to do that than when they are talking about dealing with the right. I'd, 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 like to play a, I'd like to play a bit of devil's advocate to that point, Pascal, because I don't believe that anymore. I think that's an antiquated way of, this is just my opinion, an antiquated way of thinking, because you're assuming that there is some sort of powerful left movement that needs that level of restriction. If you look at the attention around January 6th, which is antithetical to anything leftist, Granted, there wasn't people shooting, but I believe the reason why you see so much media attention around this moment is so you feel comfortable, so the population feels comfortable with the state opening fire on armed citizens. Let's be honest. Black Lives Matter protests didn't look like January 6th. That's a certain culture. Of gun nut. Sorry if I lose you guys because it is just starting to, to dump down here. Um, and I I just don't see. I understand the whole and 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 I I I agree to a certain extent. You know, like yeah, these laws come down and it's going to affect people on the left. Uh, but where, what left? No, I I agree with those. Don't 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 get my point. Incorrect. I'm not saying that we have a left ready to storm the barricades, ready for revolution out there. What I'm telling you is that there are people who consider themselves, the key word is consider themselves, (laughs) a revolutionary left Mm -hmm. who advocate that Mm -hmm. the left needs to take arms to protect itself or defend itself from the rising reactionary right. And my position is that not that that exists, that that, there is even cadre to make that a reality my position is that if you were even able to make that a reaction a reality let's say we were able to 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 develop that kind of reality Mm -hmm. i don't think that the tolerance the state and i agree with you the the the, the reaction to january 6th is one thing but there have been reactionary right movements with that are weaponized for a long time outside of january 6th and and you know what we have we have infiltration for that. And what a lot of people that love talking about the Black Panthers, which is 60 years ago, no one likes to talk about those dudes that got arrested for trying to, to kidnap the governor. And that was all a setup. People are in, they've been infiltrating the right mm-hmm. for a long time. 
That's why it's so fractured. It's not unified. Again, if January 6th was a unified movement, that would have been more frightening. I just watched what before Cuba and, and, and everybody left my apartment, we were watching. It just dropped. There's a documentary about January 6th from the cops perspective, from the people that were there. And as I was writing the script for this show and reading everybody's piece, um, I was kind of watching it out of the corner of my eye and, and, and paying a little bit of attention to it. But there really is a, a ground being set. And we saw this in the 90s. And I think a lot of people forget the 90s. As we look at Portland as the hipster capital of the world, where we laugh about that woke car accident that we saw where the lady was calling the guy or the guy was calling the lady a colonizer. Before that, how did we look at Portland? Portland was the home to neo-Nazis. The Northwest to this day. Matt's from North Dakota. From eastern Washington, throughout the Montana, all the I-90 corridor till you get to black-ass Minneapolis is a frightening place to drive through, as I have too many times to count. (laughs) That being said... There's been so much state infiltration in those movements. It moved them out from places like Coeur d'Alene, where they dominated at one point in time. It's still there, but nothing like it was in the 90s. So there has been extreme state infiltration because that's where we turned our focus in the 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union. Domestic terrorism. Again, we talk about the Panthers and California gun laws, but we forget what happened after Oklahoma City bombing. No one likes to talk about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. These are modern things that happened in our lifetime. I'm sorry, Tucson. Uh, It just said, and Ruby Ridge. Ruby Ridge. These are modern things that happened in our lifetime. On that point of you know setting the predicate to start shooting citizens, you see the way that the George Floyd protests are sort of they're re- being revised, as in cops were controlled from doing what they needed to to maintain order. It's horrifying the way that that narrative continues to be, uh, you know, before especially like when those all the Kyle Rittenhouse defense like legal mm-hmm. defense, you know, um, paralegals came out um, on YouTube. Like it, it's creepy. I mean, there's, I see some people in the chat saying that, you know, the Northwest is white, you know, nationalist central. It, yeah. And, and remember how bad it was when there were literal Time magazine articles, not what, 22 years ago, front cover, Portland, home of white supremacy. Ain't the same anymore. I've played too many shows in the Northwest. There's these pictures behind me. If you're bored enough to take a pic, look at them. They're from places I played in Butte, Montana, and Billings, and Spokane, and even places smaller than that in Washington that I can't even remember (laughs) the name of, where I know I was the only black person to walk in that city. (laughs) It's a little different. It's not a great wonderland of diversity. You know, it's not Chicago or Oakland, but it definitely ain't, ain't what it was. And a lot of that has to do with state repression of these people that stockpile weapons because they are a threat 
And well, what about organizations like the Oath Keepers that are literally made up of former military and police officers that are very armed and very weaponized? I mean, these again, it's not fun to drive through these places <laughs> as I as I've done it for so long. Um, but I'm glad I wasn't doing it in in you know in 1992. You know, uh, they're not really dragon cats in Vider, Texas, like they were before. Again, there's always going to be these little pockets of, of BS, but the state involvement and the way people are starting to feel very comfortable with the state opening fire on people. We never talk about Ruby Ridge because as leftists, we're hanging on to an idea of revolutionary action being repressed by the state. So when you bring up Ruby Ridge, that's a guy that was kind of right wing adjacent that went to some meetings. They shot up his house and, and killed members of his family. Was it his pregnant wife? Is that what it was, Tucson? That's right. So it, also the Branch Davidians as well, which was a multiracial coalition of people that had done no harm that we really know of. How many died there? State infiltration of an extremely small religious sect of people that had started stockpiling some weapons. So my whole thing about, you know, reading Matt's article, I found it fascinating that someone would feel comfortable to say, let's have a law where the police decide because we're going to entrust in them. You know, we've given them the body cameras. And 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 now you really have a Judge Dread. If you guys are comic readers, uh, a Judge Dread situation where cops are literally now uh, the judge, jury, and executioner, and state legislature is saying we're fine with that. It's progress. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So let me ask you a question: Do you believe that if the if the left actually became martial? And weaponized. If say they had the numbers, you don't think that there would be a significant similar state infiltration and desire to neutralize that 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 constellation? It's all about what you're trying to do action-wise, right? I mean, these dudes are always trying to do something effing nuts. Yes. You know how many Vice documentaries I've had to watch for the for this show and in, in some of the video intros and essays where they go underground which isn't that underground with some crazy right-wing paramilitary group sometimes these dudes are really trying to do stuff again january 6 is the proof in the pudding i don't know what january 6 moment the left had from 1965 to now maybe you do i, I i'm just thinking i don't know off the top of my head can you think of anything what the riots in 92 hmm. like seriously what 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 has the left truly done to that level where they stormed a government building other than the, the oh, Panthers? Oh, not nothing like that. Nothing <laughs> at all. So if someone says the weather yeah, underground, yeah. I mean, there was no one in those buildings they were bombing. That was the whole thing. I think they killed oh, someone. Yeah. So oh, and and yeah, that was... you have that also with the uh, environmentalists. Mm. They, they, it's it's part of their ethics to make sure no one's in the SUVs they blew up and no one's in the buildings they do anything to. It's it's a it's a different it's a different war waged 
you know, we talked about this with Todd McGowan, and that's why I think his book about happiness is, is somewhat important because the right does need something to be angry at. It needs a villain. Absolutely. And the way they go off on that villain is very different than those of us on the left that may have um, more ideological villains than actual villains. It's, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's so much about a violent change. Right. If, if revolution is really the change of one economic system to another, you know, we're thinking on a whole different level. These guys are still thinking, you know, G.I. Joe and. And uh, and Stallone movies, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I'd echo again what Strom said. I, it's totally disavow political violence. It isn't in self-defense because I just I mean. It seems like uh, pretty obvious. I, I, I don't think like a Jan 6 moment, like I can't imagine like what the most ideal, I mean, well, I'm getting to John Brown now, but. When you look at some of the stuff that's happened in the last, just let's say just 25 years. When it comes to like far right violence, we don't hear about a third of it. There's not too many people that are, you know, donate to the Southern Poverty Law Center. That's their whole thing is dealing with crazy right wing violence. And it's so prevalent. I mean, do you guys remember or maybe maybe Matt, you might be old enough to remember when all those skinhead bands and, and oi bands used to play and all the damage they used to cause. Yeah, I, I I wasn't uh I remember vaguely knowing about it and getting having that associated. I remember the like death metal uh Norwegian um skinheads. Oh, black, like, the black metal and all that crazy. Yeah, burning churches and shit like that. But Yeah, I mean that was yeah. that was definitely overseas and that was had very different. But you know, domestically, you know, there was so much more and there was really this fear and I feel like with the fall of the Soviet Union and no longer having to fight the big bad guy of communism. You now have to fight the big bad guy of fascism. That's what a lot of those guys were, aspiring fascists. Nazballs. Before we had a hashtag of MAGA communism, that's what a lot of that stuff was. But let's move on. Well, Jason, actually on that, like you were there, um, you see occasional like really good examples of people standing up to that. Mm-hmm. What was like the balance of power and did it shift over time? Like how did that play out? You know, the skinhead movement is not born out of racism. It's, it's born out of a working class movement. Um, and so you've always had black skinheads or skinheads of color, right? Um and in certain cities like New York, the punk and hardcore scene, in my opinion, is a lot more diverse than even somewhere I'm from in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so they just kind of got pushed out. Mm. And then you grow out of it. <laughs> a lot of the stuff you grow out of. You know, um. Not everything is as drastic as American History X. Like, that's a movie. 
most most people like that are never going to curb stop someone serve serve some years inside and then go back and their brother gets brutally murdered in the <laughs> being a, a replication of themselves most people like that get a meth addiction Mm. sit down for a few months come back do it all over again and they're so busy you know trying to get high the last thing they're worried about is you know hating me because i exist damn (laughs) (laughs) oversimplification tucson did you want to add anything to that as a as an east coaster uh i just want to say you're throwing out spoilers you know I haven't seen any movies. <laughs> Got Kanye mentioning it. I wanted to see it. And yay, yay, was it you? <laughs> Kanye. Whenever Kanye turns into uh, uh, a Jewish comedian when he talks. <laughs> the doctor. <laughs> His ban on doctors is just like. Straight out of Death of Stalin. <laughs> I did see that movie. <laughs> you saw Death of Stalin and you didn't see American History X? Right. Yep. I'm oh not American. God. You must really hate white people if you never saw American History X. <laughs> every hey, woman Edward I, Norton looks great in it. Every woman I came across was like, <laughs> in American History X. I was like, he was wearing a swatch sticker. He looked so good. Was it a swatch sticker? I know. He he made a lot of people conflicted. <laughs> very, very conflicted with that. Really? God. He's never looked better. <laughs> if you want to see uh, your own people, there is a few articles you can find of black dudes around that same time, coincidentally, that had swat stick tattoos. Mm. I'll find the article and I'll and I'll send it to you. It's disgusting. I believe it was a Vice article. Back when it was still like just a magazine. Should I read this super chat? Hell yeah. So we have a super chat from Strom McCallum and he says capacity to defend ourselves and electoral mandates from reactionary violence is not the same thing as advocacy for blankism. Or a putsch. Yeah. Matt, you're nodding your head. Yep, I agree strongly. I do. Can you translate that into English? <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. <sorry. For> us. <laughs> the way I see it is like, I like, I mean, kind of like, I mean, the Civil War. Um, at a certain point, like, they lose electoralism unless they. Uh, resort to violence and i think like when i think of community self-defense it is like that sort of level of thing where you don't i i mean i'm also influenced but i just finished vincent bevan's i i rereading of the uh, jakarta method mm. so talking about like that's not you know that wasn't like the middle ages right like that was <laughs> <laughs> that was within like my parents my dad was finishing high school and there was mass murders of communists going on mm. um and uh so i that's I think a defensive in the in and with the understanding that they are going to come for you, uh, I think is kind of related to the people Pascal was talking about. Well, speaking of Pascal, Pascal Robert, you want to talk about 
Amazon layoffs. Pascal, it looks like e-commerce giant, second largest employer in the country, Amazon, is looking to lay off over 17,000 employees of its massive tech sector. A trend that we are seeing in tech with the social media giant Meta laying off over 10,000 in the past year. From an article in Reuters, Amazon's layoffs now surpassed the 11,000 cuts announced last year by Facebook parent Meta Platforms, underscoring the retailer's slide from an essential business moving goods during pandemic lockdowns to a company that overbuilt for demand. Amazon has more than 1.5 million workers, including warehouse staff, making it America's second largest private employer after Walmart Incorporated. Jassy indicated its cuts extend to Europe. Jassy said in the note that annual planning has been, quote, uh, has been more difficult given the uncertain economy and that we've hired rapidly over the past several years, unquote. The reductions will bring Amazon's corporate workforce closer to September 2021 levels when it told Reuters this headcount numbered around 275,000 people globally. Pascal, Amazon, Meta, Cisco, Peloton, all the companies that were growing during the pandemic are laying people off in the thousands. Does this say more about artificial growth during the early pre-vaccine days of COVID? And what does this mean economically? It's a very good question. Well, one thing that we have to realize is that one of the things that we've been applauding pretty much on the left is the rise of what some believe is a labor militancy with strikes, even though others have argued that there's really no demonstrative evidence that there's been an increase in such activity with what we saw at the attempt to get unionization at Amazon and a few other places, Starbucks and a few other locations. There was a general belief that in 2022, the revival of left of labor militancy had come, particularly around, say, September, October. And then all of a sudden, there was a strong push by uh, Fed Chairman Powell to talk about in the face of rising inflation, there would be a need to increase interest rates. And one of the things that many people who study economics relative to labor and interest rates realize is that one of the traditional mechanisms used to kind of discipline the freedom or economic demand of labor for higher wages and better better quality of life from employers is interest rate rises. This is something that was also done in the late 70s as well that had a significantly disadvantageous effect on labor also. So what is interesting is that with the COVID economic uh, precarity that the country faced, because people were unable to go out, shop, or use normal means to acquire goods and services, people depended more greatly on digital platforms like Amazon and others to acquire resources they would need to live. But what happened is that once COVID actually receded, combined also with the phenomenon of energy prices due to the to the war in U- with Ukraine and the instability that that actually causes with these companies facing that as well, all of a sudden, the capacity of these tech companies to meet demands actually becomes more precarious because they don't have the demands anymore because people are not going out, they're buying in other places, they're not depending on actual Amazon and other actually technological companies to get their wares anymore. They, they, they are basically, their overhead is too high and now they start laying people off. And don't forget, if interest rates are higher, the capacity of companies to, to borrow money 
from the private sector for development and growth, whether that be labor and otherwise, is limited as well. So the argument I'm making is that the confluence of rising rates, fears of, of, of recession, the situation in Ukraine, and increased energy costs have created a perfect storm in the face of this labor militancy to create a situation where now the tech industry is doing some of the you know more uh, egregious layoffs that we're seeing in the country, even though this was a, a sector that was traditionally believed to be, you know, unlimited in terms of its growth. Now, the question becomes, the stock market also has been dipping as well as mm -hmm. a reaction to this uh, tech tech uh, labor, these tech labor cuts also. So what ends up happening to me is that the question is that what exactly does this mean for labor overall? If these companies that did so well economically during COVID are so willing to immediately say, you know what, we got to cut 10, 11, 20,000. Because if you look at the list of the companies that are laying off, big tech layoffs, Amazon, 18,000, Meta, 11,000, Salesforce, 8,000, Cisco, 4,100, Twitter, 3,700, and, and Better.com, better 3,000, Peloton, 2,800. So some of these countries, companies are laying off anywhere between 6 to 50% of their, their staff in the face of this precarity. And the question also becomes, has tech reached a bubble? that basically is exploring. In other words, have we reached the peak of the tech expansion where digital platforms combined with uh, uh, digital retailers like Amazon have maximized their growth where basically they've peaked to the point where there is no more growth possible and only cutting off labor is the option they have to maintain their profit margin. And that's an answer that I think that we have to address because how those employees are going to be dealing with that kind of economic precarity is something that I think that we on the left have to really be prepared to organize around because we can't just be there to cheerlead labor when they're talking about we need to unionize, we need to strike. But what about those times when people are getting laid off? We have to have answers for that as well. And frankly, I think that's something that we need to be prepared for because I don't have an immediate answer to how does the left look like in a time when there's going to be massive tech layoffs? Are these people of a consciousness where they're open to a left politics, frankly, since a lot of these companies are not unionized anyway or just becoming unionized like Amazon? I mean, I'm reminded of 10 years ago when I was like in my first semester at NYU master's program realizing like, oh shit, you're not going to be a teacher, bro. <laughs> like, there's not <laughs> going to be jobs for you. And so I got online and started trying to teach myself to code. Like literally it was like that I was following like the learn to code advice. And Ben Shapiro recently did learn to weld to all the, you know, Elon Musk fired Twitter employees. And I wonder like, like that, something needs to take that place. Like what the thing you tell people to go do like the go West young man was like the <laughs> one of the 18th century. Like, like we don't have anything for you here, but there is plenty of opportunity out there. Like, what is it? Because, and I agree with, with Pascal because like, I, I think we are at the end of uh, Silicon Valley stuff. It's why you have AIs. They've been um, bullshitting about crypto for the last like four years. And now like we have AI that like, that's the new thing, I guess. Like that's going to be uh, justify like I, all the investment. I don't really think, that's going to really pan out as much as uh, they think. So like, 
Yeah, I mean, that was like me growing up. That was like, oh, tech, be a Google employee. They only hire geniuses and they get to like, they have a chef that, you know, feeds them sushi right as they work. Like, I don't know what like kids look up to now as like a way to even start to have illusions that there is uh, enough opportunity for them uh, going forward. Like, what do they do? Like, what like, is it YouTube streamers? Like, who is it? Matt, so okay, I have a question. I'm not a question. I have, a, I have something I want to get your. Have you ever seen the movie, the David Cross movie, Hits? No. David Cross wrote and directed a movie in 2014 called Hits, and we watched it for movie night. Do you remember that movie, Pascal? No, I don't. The girl wanted to be famous, and her Who dad was a right wing nut job. Did you watch that mm. with us? A movie night? No, but I think we talked about this movie. Before. Okay, yeah, we talked about it. Was Basically, that idiocracy. So, it, no, idiocracy. That's not idiocracy. Hits. Did you watch Hits oh, with us, Tucson? I think so. Yeah. Okay. It's the one where the white girl wanted to be a singer and she couldn't sing, and her yeah. dad was a right wing nut job, and the and the hipsters from Brooklyn were gonna go upstate yes. New York and make oh, dude yeah. famous. They made a viral video for him. So this this movie comes out before the podcast boom, um, kind of on the tail end of I'm gonna be famous because I'm on the internet. Like I went viral, or I'm going to be famous because I stood in line for a talent show. And I, I watched it the other night. I had some some house guests. Uh, Deep State Kuba was here with his wife and, and and a young woman that helps us with the live shows. Jordan Jordan Dubin was here as well. Uh, Matt, you know, you know, Jordan. And we're watching this movie and everyone's cracking up and really digging in. We're having a great conversation, as you can imagine. Uh, podcasters would have after watching this kind of movie. And Kuba says, did I ever tell you about my idea about the more localization of, of of America or of the world? And he was kind of talking about what we talk about, you know, the 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 grinding gears of neoliberalism really affecting people to the point where there is no way out. Education isn't the way out. Learning to code isn't the way out. So all I can do to be important is fame. And in this movie, no one's even stopping this young lady and saying, hey, you're going to die in this town. This is just what it is. You know, which is what a lot of movies that were like that in eras before would have kind of been a theme of the film. Mm. But the fact that this young lady felt like, well, I'm a nice person and I can be a good famous person. These other people are are famous and talentless. And I, I, I think I have some talent and why shouldn't I be famous? And, you know, it's a typical Schadenfreude kind of funny uh, movie where her father, um, who maybe encourages her horrible singing talent too much is also a crazy hoarder, that goes to city council meetings after listening to too much Alex Jones, Sean Hannity type, Rush Limbaugh type radio and yells about the tyranny of the city council. We did watch this. Yes, I remember. Yes, yes we did. We did watch <laughs> okay. this together. And, and then and then um, what happens is Michael Sarah, who plays the city council president's son, sells pot to hipsters in Greenpoint. And <laughs> one of these hipsters wants to hitch his wagon to a cause. 
And watching it again for like the fifth time, I was like, oh, these guys are supposed to be leftists trying to hitch their wagon to a cause. So one of the questions that gets asked when the leader of this quote unquote leftist organization says, hey, I found this guy. The city council isn't letting him talk. They literally arrested him for for speaking his 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 peace. We're going to get behind this guy. And the people in the meeting went. And then what? He goes, well, I don't know. But he had a whole plan not to help the man, but a plan for fame. Mm. And this movie, again, is 2014. So it's, what, four years before we get our first real social media uh, political figure in, in AOC. So it's a – rewatch it, you know, and again, I – I really dug the movie and, and people are going to see what they want to see. And, and I know some people that when we watched it didn't really dig it as much as me, but I see it as a still very prescient film because I think that's still where we are, where we are in a moment where people still just want to be seen. They want to be taken seriously and they want to survive and working somewhere for 25 years, 30 years and getting a gold watch ain't it anymore it's just not reality it's not even there's not even a memory of that (laughs) (laughs) at least like i'd see like all the tv shows represented that to me as a kid like oh yeah this is like the office even though that was like a (sighs) a a merging paper company it was like the idea of what work life was now but even now it's like oh we it's me and a few hipsters with lattes around a, a shared workspace um, you know, coming up with the next party that we're going to throw for investors. <laughs> like no, no one, the office changed hands. There was so many changes in leadership. If you watch that show and no one got fired, one person <laughs> got fired in the what, 12 years that it was on. And it was a guy they created to get fired. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, you know, we live in a fantasy land and we call it reality. And we love it. That feels over. I don't know. It feels like maybe I'm just too cynical, but like that's all. I mean, I know I also have seen people like all the people who got fired by Elon, even though they're not getting severance like he publicly said they would. A lot of those folks are going to end up in good jobs or whatever. Right. But it's still like culturally that's gone. Well, like, the that fear, idea. well I will say this. The fear is that there's really nowhere for people to go. One thing mm-hmm. people have to remember is when you start moving up sometimes in these places, positions get made for you. There's a lot of room in the middle. And as you start getting these positions that are made for you, it's kind of like uh, if you've ever read David Graeber's bullshit jobs, even skimmed it. Mm-hmm. There's so many positions where you're going to make six figures that don't really have value. So as you start to see things like this where there's uh, – we're going to start getting rid of all these positions. That's just people that didn't really serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. When times are good, everybody's eaten. That sushi's free when times are good, Matt. When times are not good, well, it might cost you $10 a meal if you are an actual employee of the company. If you are a contracted employee, well, you have to pay a little bit more and you won't get reimbursed or a tax deduction at the end of the year like the regular employees. Mm -hmm. So um, I I don't actually see the fact that these people can kind of fall into – good jobs because the reason why you get with a company that large is for security 
There's always a smaller company popping up somewhere that will pay you way more money. But will they last after the second infusion of investor capital you know, goes to the up the nose of the of the CEO? So it, I think it's two it, things. It, uh-huh. Um sorry to, not, not to no, cut please you off. cut me off. All right, consider yourself cut off. Um, so. Get your hand off my penis! Alrighty. It was not, that's not where my hand was. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I was having a conversation with a friend. We were about the same age. And I was telling her that there's no more gold watch. There's no more Cadillac. You don't get anything um, at the end of your service for a lot of these jobs. And she kind of got quiet because I think she was thinking, maybe for you, <laughs> probably probably a percentage of people who think that that's still there. It's just not there for, like, losers, you know? It's going to be there for me. I'm going to get a good package. I'm going to get insurance. I am. You're but gonna in get, the look. meantime, she's waiting, like, months to get a job that had insurance. You had even offer insurance. But she well, doesn't even have a job right now when she's making these proclamations? At the time, she didn't have a job. She has no problems finding jobs. Mm-hmm. She had a problem finding a job with it, with benefits. Well, that's, you can that's give out less now. If you're comfortable with working at home and you don't want to go inside for whatever reason, maybe it's children, maybe she just don't want to go inside anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there's been a few articles in places like Business Insider that's actually talking about the fact that some of these companies like you can stay your ass at home if you want to. We're going to pay you less and you're going to work yeah. way more. Yep. So that that single mom or, you know, that that parent that really appreciated and their life changed during COVID because they could do a little bit more with, you know, picking up the kid and, and not having to depend on uh, daycares and stuff like that. I mean, they're going after your your wallet, and they're gonna make you work more. So it's like, here, you you we'll give you fifteen thousand more and a decent benefits package, but twenty four hours, you're mine. You're mine. It's interesting. I know I have a family member who's an engineer in North Dakota, and they've been trying to claw back the 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 um stuff from the the folks, but they can't. Like, there's literally, you know. They mm-hmm. won't be able to replace them, and they're not even union, but they're just like holding firm, like we like this, what this has done for our lifestyle. Um, and I don't think that's unrelated to the Fed. <laughs> um, you know, it's nice to see all the crypto guys lose from this, but I think the real like other thing they have their eye on is making sure that we discipline labor. No doubt. As a matter of fact, I was oh. watching the episode of Majority Report today. They had a really good economist that we need to think about getting on our show. Yeah, she's talking great. about the same actual phenomenon about using uh, the Federal Reserve as a mechanism to actually discipline labor through interest rates. And I've been saying that on this show for a while. And I was, and I've been, I'm glad Jack Rasmus actually agreed when we had him on. We're talking about that as well. And uh, I don't think it's accidental by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's an actual strategic yep. mechanism that uh, Powell is using. That's really like the if you were going to teach somebody one thing about politics, isn't that kind of like the Fed policy and how they like, I mean, isn't that the main sort of story that should be emphasized of uh, like just what the government's been doing over the past decade, like flooding the zone with cash with speculators Mm -hmm. like 
that's where the game is. That, I mean, no, that's exactly what you don't need to worry about. That's what <laughs> I was taught. Alan Greenspan will take care of everything. It's fine. Well, you that don't goes even back know to the what name Matt, of the guy now. But that goes back to Matt's original story, which that was the first thing I saw when I read that story. The technocrats, we got it covered. Don't worry about the school shooting. We figured it out. It was that the cops don't get more involved um, with with these with these shootings and take these guns away. And part of it was family members. My, I'll, I'll, I'll give a quick anecdote before we we pivot to the end of the show. Um, my first festival I worked in the Coachella Valley was a thing called Desert Trip, or Old Cella, as you young people like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, the the Who, um, um, Paul McCartney. Who's that angry man that was in Pink Floyd? Roger Waters, <laughs> um, right? And uh, and if whatever. While we were working, I think it was a show day, um, and we were staying in a house way further south of where. Coachella actually happens. Um, and it was about 12 of us in a house. Um, we had heard on the radio driving back to the house and I had got an alert on my phone while I was actually working at Coachella that there was an active shooter in the area. And it was a young man who was mentally disturbed and his mother called the police and the, the cops got there and a the kid shot two cops. And Thinking about what what you had sent, Matt, that was like the first thing that came to my mind when I was reading about these laws that, you know, a family member can say, you know, so and so it ain't right. You know, he's got a gun. Take it away. And I, I, that's complicated mm-hmm. because these things really do happen where. Um, where where family members are armed and it's, it is a dangerous situation and, and you don't feel comfortable taking the gun away or you don't have the power maybe to, uh, to take the gun away. Um, not saying that this law is the solution. Right. Right. I'm just saying <laughs> that we can't simply say, um, that it is, uh, it's all dumb and it's not, it's not complicated. But I don't think that answer um, of what uh, is being proposed in, in Minneapolis or Minnesota yeah. is, is good. I don't think, yeah, I don't think the uh, Eden Prairie uh, Sean Hannity fan cop uh, <laughs> is really the guy to be like, <laughs> you know what? I think especially post uh, uh, Floyd protests, like, I don't know if these cops are really in the I mean, let's just say frame of mind to be uh, given this responsibility right now. Oh no! And I'll and I'll and I'll. So we got to the house, and a couple guys that stayed for one of the shows came back, and they were drunk, right? And when they came in, and people were really stoned in the house, and and they came in, and someone said, "Hey, did you guys hear about the shooter?" And these guys that came back from the show, they were like, um, "Yeah, we saw him. He was running down the street, and they were just fucking with these people, right?" And this uh, this very stoned young lady who was worried 
decided that it'd be a good idea to call 911. She called 911 and, uh, and, sh- and she says, uh, I-, I saw the shooter because they were looking for the guy. The guy had shot these cops and took off. And he was in our area. And so she said, I saw the shooter and I have some friends here that will explain him to you. And the dudes that thought it was a funny joke to entice this young lady to do this as I'm yelling, no, you can imagine I'm everybody's dad. I'm yelling, no, and, uh, they got scared and then hung up the phone. No one thought no one knew that anytime you call 911, they, they geolocate where the call is coming from. And they thought, oh, we call on the cell phone. They can't find us. <laughs> Um, so maybe five minutes later after I was yelling, uh, like an angry dad, uh, that this was going to happen, the cops knocked on the door and then literally people hid and the cops, when you tell someone that there's an active shooter, cops don't come to the door without their guns drawn, by the way. So, as I open the door, the cop, you know, he's got his gun out. And, where's the shooter? Where's the shooter? What saved me was it was such a motley crew of individuals that was in the house. And law enforcement, because this festival was off-season for the Coachella Valley. So, they 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 weren't really thinking about, oh, there's a music festival going on and these are just kids that work there. They looked inside and it was so odd that the cop pushed me aside and was like, what? <laughs> and he went, what is this? We didn't train for this. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, it was like me. There was like this young white girl. There was like a black chick. There was like a Mexican dude. There was like a couple of Filipino <laughs> guys. Like it was just such a weird hodgepodge. The is going people. on and off. It's <laughs> <laughs> like what? He goes what? And of course, of course, you know they they yelled a little bit about uh, calling nine one one and not being serious. But uh, yeah, that really did happen. Sheesh. Yikes. So don't call nine one one, people, unless it's serious. Which you would think people would know. But they were millennials, and that's my excuse. Wow. I thought we were jumping on Zoomers today. They were that, too. <laughs> well, thank you again, Matt, for joining us. Um, mm-hmm. If you, the listening, viewing audience, haven't done it yet, please hit like and subscribe and the notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live. Also, go over and please, if you haven't done it, give Left Reckoning a like. Again, I can't say enough how that small gesture goes a long way in the support of independent left media. Also, wherever you're watching or listening to this, there are links in the description to the live show that we'll be doing with Matt and David at the Cutting Room in New York City. January 22nd or 23rd. 22nd, I'm pretty sure, right? 22nd. I'm trying to book my flight, so my, my date's on it. <laughs> um, did, you put the, did you put the image up on the screen, too, son? The image? No. I put oh, the link in the chat, though. Did you put did the you image? Stop. When I say that, you're supposed to instantly put the image on the screen. 
but you sometimes do that yourself. I can't do three things at once because I'm also reading from the script. <laughs> give a revolution. Ben Burgess, give them an argument. Us here at TIR, of course, Matt and David from Left Reckoning with special guests, Sam Cedar, Emma Viglin, and Boshkar. Boskar? Ben always tells us. Yeah, Ben goes, you yeah. say it wrong. I was like, man, shut up. <laughs> man, shut up. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> well, now with that out of the way, before I go, I wanted to touch on something that is part of what I touched on last time we all got together to do this when we discussed the 25% occupancy rate at the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, right next to Skid Row. There is a simple answer people give that may seem extremely obvious when discussing the unhoused, and that is just give them a house. Is it ever truly that simple? If it is that simple, then does that mean that it is not a matter of political will to try to attempt to solve this problem, but simply good and bad people not doing the right thing? Is it then that bad politicians just don't want to house them and citizens just want the unsightly blight out of the public view? So again, is it just as simple as good versus bad? The complexities of addressing the homeless crisis is an expensive and profitable business. If you're an advocate of the housing first strategy, which to me sometimes feels like a joke I heard the late Sam Kinison say in the 80s when Americans were bombarded by Sally Struthers ads telling us that for pennies a day, we could help solve famine in faraway lands and feed starving children. Kinison said the solution was simple. And then he yelled, tell them where the food is. That tone deaf and sensitive joke hits me the same way when I hear all too often, the answer is simple, and we have the means and are just too lazy or evil to attempt a true, honest solution to the crisis. During the early days of COVID in many municipalities, putting unhoused citizens into temporary housing in the form of single-room occupancy hotels was used to get people off the streets and out of shelters that were living COVID petri dishes at this time. Did it work? Was everyone thankful and receptive? Have the people that were placed in permanent supportive housing, a goal of the program uh, during this time, still in housing? Have the numbers of the unhoused gone down? About six years ago in California, two measures were voted on for Angelinos to pay more in taxes to tackle the homeless crisis. And the people overwhelmingly said, we'll pay more to solve this. Unions, developers, along with nonprofits and activists, lobbied for these bills. They passed, and the Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority was created, entrusted with about a billion billion with a B dollar budget, they were, they were to build over 10,000 units of permanent supportive housing. How is that work working out for Los Angeles? And, and again, that's just for Los Angeles, not all of California, San Diego County, as well as San Francisco and Alameda County in the Bay Area and all the surrounding Bay Area counties are also dealing with a horrible homeless crisis. As you can imagine, there are some large salaries 
and bureaucratic bloat. Um, if you haven't seen it, please check out the last show we did before the holiday break where I discussed how one large hotel located in the heart of Skid Row still cannot manage to fill 75% of their remodeled but can the blame of this ineptitude be simply placed on the difficulty of building housing, dealing with the complex and convoluted California legislation? Why don't we look at Houston, Texas, a city that was being applauded as the shining light in this housing first approach? Why have their numbers with homelessness gone up in the last few years, even before COVID? From an article in The Hill. Since the Obama administration, the federal government's approach to reduce homelessness has been based on a simple concept. The homeless are homeless because they don't have homes. Give them a home, and regardless of underlying addiction or mental illness, they'll no longer be homeless. The policy is called housing first. The theory made mandatory for the groups that receive billions in federal funding to address homelessness is that people experiencing homelessness cannot be helped unless they first have a home without conditions such as sobriety. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, you guys may know it as HUD, even defunded mental health, addiction counseling, and employment training services. Unfortunately, this one-size-fits-all policy ignores human nature and too frequently results in soul-crushingly low expectations that co-sign too many to a life of dependency. The human wreckage wrought by Housing First was revealed last year in Boston, where a 14-year study followed 73 chronically unsheltered people who were provided with permanent supportive housing. Researchers found that the focus on housing rather than treatment and recovery saw impressive early results, but by year five, only 36% remain sheltered. While at the study's end, almost half of the cohort died due to a trimorbidity, combination of medical, psychiatric, and substance abuse disorder. I've read two articles in the LA Times in the last two weeks that go in depth on LA County dealing with a lack of mental health care workers. It's a thankless job that takes a massive mental toll and there is more money to be made in the private sector. Even when taking the barriers to housing, such as drug use and prior convictions, many people just don't last in housing. Some commit suicide. That actually happened a few times at the facility I was at in the Bay Area. Or some overdose. Do we want to promote a solution that builds facilities of anguish where walls protect citizens from blight but lock in desperation? More from the Hill article. On the surface, Houston may be onto something. Over the past nine years, Houston has seen a reduction in homelessness of 49%, with the number of sheltered homeless declining by 204 and the number of unsheltered people declining by 2,932, according to a point-in-time count. Data, like people, can be complex, and thus the picture is not as sunny as it appears. After a few decent years of getting people into housing, 2011 to 2016, Houston's efforts might be reaching the limitations shown in the Boston study. Since 2017, the number of unsheltered homeless, the population for whom the Housing First Intervention was originally designed, soared by 33%. That plateau and rebound may be due to a lack of emphasis on treatment and options in the current system. Some 78% of the street homeless struggle with substance use disorder and or mental illness, and the vast majority of the addicted slash mentally ill struggle with anosonia, 
the deficit of self-awareness. This means the provision of non-requirements in housing where services are optional and where residents can continue to engage in negative behaviors is intuitively and increasingly shown to be counterproductive. If you've watched this show, you've heard me say this, and I'll say it again. There are complexities with trying to tackle homelessness, and simple ideological solutions don't work in practice. Having an honest dialogue with other leftists can get you labeled as one that reiterates right-wing talking points. Well, what if some of those talking points might have merit? Crime exists and thrives in many of these encampments. And you know what? I don't see too many people that can't wait to live near one. I don't see ads advertising a two-bedroom, one-bath next to a thriving tent city and RV parking station. I've never seen ads on Craigslist for people begging for an encampment to pop up next to their child's school. Are we fighting to improve people's lives or just celebrating titular wins when you've temporarily stopped a camp sweep? What prevented unhoused citizens to obtain shelter because a homeless hotel has rules or curfew? We should be able to talk and not be afraid to say that wrong thing that makes us feel cast out of leftist orthodoxy. Because you acknowledge the dangers of living next to encampments and the fact that we probably don't want people to live in these situations. As we've said earlier in this show, the technocrats don't have the answers. And the business of usual as throwing more money at the problem doesn't seem to be working. Don't have the answers to these questions. I would love to hear what you guys have to say about this. Thank you, Matt. Anton, don't care what you say because uh, <laughs> you never have stats. You just have feelings. And... Um, I can give you statistical evidence, and depending on where you are in the Northwest, I can even show you where Seattle has failed with the same approach. That being said, if you have something to say, you want to get into it with one of us, we're going in the champagne room. We're opening up the phone lines. Pancakes versus waffles in the oh champagne. <laughs> waffles. <laughs> it got to be waffles. Oh. French toast, baby. Oh, yeah. Well, if that's an option. Yeah. Says. That wasn't an option. What about French, <laughs> French toast? is an also option. The... Is it? Okay. Mm -hmm. French toast, waffles, pancakes. There you go. I'll allow it. Thank you guys for checking it out. You have something to say? Leave a comment. We are. <laughs>